Corbett. You see a 9-9. Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Hello, I'm Vince Hunt and welcome to our podcast series, Sports in the Cold War. So far, we've looked at more than 20 important themes in Cold War sports history, with plenty more to come. Why not follow the series on Twitter with the hashtag ColdWarSports, or rate and review the shows on iTunes, or drop Laura Deal an email at the Wilson Centre with your thoughts. Organised athletic events in Asia were underway at a regional level from before the turn of the 20th century, set up by missionaries and Christian groups like the YMCA, and formalised as the Far Eastern Championship Games between 1913 and 1934. After peace returned to the Pacific region with the end of World War II, the Asian Games were founded, opening in Delhi in 1951 and characterised as a symbol of peaceful Asian cooperation at a time of Cold War tensions and sometimes violent decolonisation. Well, Stefan Hubner is an expert on colonialism, development policy and sport in Asia. He's a research fellow at the National University of Singapore and the author of a book, Pan-Asian Sport and the Emergence of Modern Asia from 1913 to 74. Stefan, did it take long for the Asian region to reorganise for sport after World War II? I imagine that region must have been quite badly dislocated. Well, if we compare um, the Asian region to the Olympic Games, then it took longer to reorganize. I mean, the Olympic Games, um, for example, took place again after about three years in 1948 in London, whereas in the case of Asia, it took longer. But this is not necessarily because of the war, but it is also an outcome of the problems that Indian organizers had. They had initially no stadium, even though they were supposed uh, to host games and um, building a stadium yeah, cost uh, some time. So in the end, um, this delayed the process. But the plans emerged really early, already during the last months of the Second World War to recreate some sort of Asian or Far Eastern championship games. And who was it that was driving that resumption of sporting relations? Well, I already mentioned the Indians. They were very important, but we also had the Chinese, the Chinese nationalists, not the communists, and also Filipinos. This is maybe a bit surprising if one doesn't know the backstory, because, um, as you said, in 1913, the Faisal Championship Games had been founded in Manila, which was at this point in time the capital of the Philippines, colony of the United States. And this was done by the YMCA. So this was one outcome of American colonial policy and had quite strong impact on Philippine society. So the Filipinos were during the 1910s, 1920s, a very strong sports power, one can say, in Asia. And a lot of Filipinos had been trained by the YMCA and other groups in American colleges, universities as professional physical educators. So these people were very experienced. We also have the Japanese as an very influential group, but because of the defeat in the Second World War, as one might expect, they didn't really play a big role, except that they tried to get back into the Olympic movement. And the Chinese, as mentioned, also were very influential initially until yeah, the Civil War really became problematic because they too had been inspired by the YMCA and other groups. So they actually were the country that should have hosted the very first 
Asian Games, but because uh, most of the organizers eventually fled to Taiwan and some others to Hong Kong, this was not uh, possible. It was then Indians who had also been inspired by the YMCA to take over the burden or the honor of organizing the first Asian Games. And what kind of uh, sports were there that featured? Um, give me some of the highlights uh, of, of that Games. It might be surprising, but there were no Asian sports or those sports one would consider Asian sports like um, judo, for example, wushu and um, other sports, uh, martial arts and so on. But these um, sports did not take place, um, but only Western sports, sports that were inspired by the YMCA and the International Olympic Games. And this was also to a certain degree because one needed sports in which all Asian countries could participate and if possible in which no specific country would have significantly more experience than the other countries so that um, everybody had a reasonable chance to win a medal. But the most important sports actually in um, Guru Dutzondi's opinion, he was the most influential Indian organizer, was swimming and track and field because these sports were low-cost sports and it was very important for him to host low-cost sports because of the poverty in many Asian countries. What was the reaction to it? Was it was it positive? Was it seen as a as a triumph of human spirit? Well, for the organizers and for the politicians, it was a symbol of Asia's reunification, the beginning of decolonization, Asia growing together again. Jawaharlal Nehru, for example, the Indian prime minister who already during the interwar period had uh, made certain pan-Asian claims was um, also very convinced that this was a very positive event like for example the Asian Relations Conference that had taken place in 1947 and later on the Bandung Conference in Indonesia in 1955, the Asia-Africa Conference as it is also called. So this is also one outcome of this um, Asian reunification process in which um, quite a lot of politicians believed. When we talk about uh, normal people, I'm not really sure if they knew that these games took place. At least when we talk about um, people not living in India, because um, I read in several newspapers that the media campaign was um, relatively poorly done. I mean, in India, newspapers report on the games. This was also the case in other countries. But all in all, media attention in many countries seems not to have been Court. At least this was an accusation by um, several Indian newspapers. That the press coverage wasn't enough. Yeah, this is um, something that happened um, during several um, games because, I mean, in these days we did not have um, television or at least not um, available to um, Asian consumers. Uh, we had some radio broadcasting, but affording a radio, yes, in Japan, sure, many, many people had radios by then. But in many other countries, people were limited to newspapers and um, even newspapers were not um, easily accessible. So the cycle of the Games goes New Delhi in 1951, in the Philippines in 1954, and then, extraordinary to think really, in Japan in 1958. And that's only 13 years after Japan's had atomic bombs dropped on it. And this is also it's um, six years before the Olympic Games took place in Japan. So we still had an atmosphere that uh, was to a certain degree characterized by limited anti-Japanese feelings. For example, when we talk about um, the games you just mentioned in the Philippines, 
1954, when the Japanese entered the stadium in Manila, all the people started to insult them. This was uh, more or less a um, reaction to the Japanese um, occupation of the Philippines, and they shouted all sorts of um, Japanese um, words they had learned, um, like um, thief and um, other words. Um, so this was um, quite problematic, I would say. But um, at the end of the games, it was said that the situation had changed a bit and um, people had become used to the Japanese presence again. But the Asian Games here are an example of bridge building through sport, aren't they? Yeah, this was at least the initial aim. People were aware that um, sports events sometimes uh, could increase tensions if many, many people meet. But all in all, the um, amateur spirit, um, also heritage of the Olympic Games, or the early Olympic spirit, and also of the YMCA, still existed. And people believed that um, internationalism and egalitarianism and also to a certain degree, um, yeah, something like a capitalist uh, work ethic could be inspired among people through sports. So all in all, a means to create a better world, so to speak. This is at least what the YMCA had in mind, um, obviously from an American Protestant perspective, but nevertheless um, a positive or benevolent intention, even though it was implemented um, sometimes in a very paternalistic way. At the same time, as well as this post-World War II bridge building, there's also a period of decolonization, as well as the Cold War shaping this particular region. So it must have been tremendously confusing trying to, to plot any particular outcomes for any of these countries. Was there a tendency for newly independent nations to vent anti-imperialist, anti-colonial sentiments at these games? Did it become, for example, a, an international platform like the Olympics did for protest? Yes. I mean, um, I first want to say something on the um, host countries. When we talk about India, for example, in 51, we have a leading country of what would later become the non-aligned movement. Then we have the Philippines in 1954, pro-American ally. Um, Seattle, for example. Then we have the Japanese in 58, also very pro American, not necessarily voluntarily, but um, because um, of the Cold War situation, this was necessary. And then in 1962, we have Indonesia. Sukarno's Indonesia, also one of the leading countries of the non-aligned movement. Afterwards, um, Thailand, two times, um, 1966 and 70 again, American ally, actually the most important American ally during the Vietnam War. And then the last um, event I focus on were the games in 74 in Iran, also relatively pro-American. But um, the most dramatic incidents took place in 1962 in Sukarno's Indonesia. This was um, games that were really inspired by anti-colonialism, anti-neo-colonialism, anti-imperialism and so on. He um, gave quite a lot of speeches on these topics, which was also inspired um, to a certain degree by um, the CIA's um, attempt to yeah, basically to topple his government um, some years earlier. So he felt not necessarily um, threatened um, by the Dutch, but by the Americans, even though he did not break um, up relations with them. But the Dutch, for example, also mattered a bit because um, they were quarreling with Indonesia over control over some remaining colonies in West Papua and all this had an impact on the rhetoric of the games. So this was not necessarily between colonizers and colonized or former colonized on the 
ashtray, but um, really about um, the rhetoric around the games, the pan-Asian rhetoric. We meet here as Asians to show to the world that we are competent in hosting such games, that we are able to build um, giant hotels, that we are able to build giant sports stadiums that um, are as good as the stadiums in other parts of the world. We are not worse than the West. We are not worse than the Eastern Bloc. We are competent now after decolonization, after this um, period of darkness is over. Our new golden age is beginning now. And where does the Vietnam War fit into this Cold War period? But maybe talk about the games in Thailand in 1966 and in 1970. Yeah, we have a situation that was very much influenced by the Vietnam War. We have attempts on the side of the Thai government to increase tourism. There were already quite a lot of American soldiers coming to Thailand, especially to Bangkok for recreation purposes, mostly visiting prostitutes and so on. We know these uh, stories, but um, there were also more and more Japanese who were becoming rich and therefore could do overseas trips. So hosting, for example, um, the Asian Games or the Southeast Asian Games or trade fairs and so on served to increase the tourism trade of the Thais. And um, quite a lot of hotels were built, for example, during 1966, inspired by the um, Asian Games by a big trade fair and other events. Um, so this um, had an impact. But um, when we talk about, um, for example, funding problems, in 1970, the Vietnam War also had an obvious impact. The Thais actually didn't have the money to host the games because they uh, had to spend um, so much money on their military. Nevertheless, um, it was possible to host the games. Strictly speaking, they were not supposed to host the 1970 games. The Koreans were supposed, or the South Koreans were supposed to host these games, but they too had an money problem because um, they were yeah, very much threatened by North um, Korea and therefore couldn't focus on um, hosting the games, had to give up the idea and then the Thais took over, got a lot of Japanese money, Korean money and then were able eventually with, that, with this uh, money to host the games. Were the Asian games a pathway to eventual stability? in the region, a region of shifting and complex post-war allegiances. How much of today's sporting landscape can be attributed to their success? Well, this is difficult to answer because when we talk, for example, the exclusion of Israel, we have to wonder if this is actually something um, positive or something negative. It contributed to the stability of the Games, yes, but um, it's obviously sign that um, quite a lot of um, influential countries, for example, the Arab countries, could enforce their own perception of Asia. And Israel is no part of Asia or of the uh, Middle East. So um, Israel eventually was forced to work together with a lot of European federations. And over the course um, of time, we also had uh, the exclusion of, um, or de facto exclusion of several countries. The Indonesians, for example, excluded um, Taiwan and also, again, Israel and we also had the absence of communist countries for quite a while but eventually from yeah one can say the late 70s onward after Israel was excluded things um, did not uh, lead to significant um, or we did not see significant problems anymore some of the former Soviet republics eventually joined the games and there are limited or some some mild tensions between East Asia and the Arab world. This is about um, funding and influence. But this is um, all in all no 
factor that um, resulted in the breakdown of the games. In contrast, for example, to the breakdown of the Far Eastern Championship games during the 1930s. So yes, I would say um, all in all it resulted in a stabilization of the region. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.